If you were with us for 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, we saw David's fall. And David was forgiven, but he was promised fallout from his fall, consequences from what had occurred. And one of the major pieces of those consequences is his son Absalom, conspiracy and rebellion against his father. It's a sad, tragic consequence, and it's something that David has to deal with. But there's great lessons here for us to learn about Absalom's rebellion. And it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Now, it came about after this, 2 Samuel 15, 1. So whenever you see something like that, you say, after what? The last verse of chapter 14 says, so when Joab, and remember Joab had manipulated a a way to get a woman to come before David and tell a story and ultimately get Absalom back into the royal court. When Joab came to the king, and this is after uh, Absalom had started a fire in Joab's field to get things moving, you remember that? Hey, you're not returning my phone calls, I'll just set your field on fire and then we'll get things moving in a positive direction here. Well, they responded to the ultimatum of Absalom, called for him, 1433. Thus he came to the king, prostrated himself, that looks good, on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. That's how last week ended. These were, you could say in many ways, formalities of the royal court. Sometimes you will see in Europe and in other places how people will do a formal kiss on the cheek. They'll kiss both sides of the face. And it's not necessarily something that's done out of deep emotion or a depth of relationship. It's more a formality. David's kiss was a kiss from a father to a son, but it does seem like what Absalom did was a formality, bowing before the king, almost like you would do if you came before anybody where that was expected. And then David's kiss was a way of saying, you're back in the good graces of the royal court. You're, you're an heir again, even though we know that Absalom will not be the heir to the throne. He will die. But Absalom was never intended to be the heir to the throne. The heir to the throne is going to be a man named Solomon. That was God's plan. And David is going to know as these Uh, chapters unfold, and I think we all are aware of what is behind this, that God's disciplinary hand is happening in David's life. He is meeting out discipline to David for what David did. And and David was told by Nathan the prophet, the sword's never going to leave your house. What you did in secret is going to be done openly. And you've given cause for the enemies of God to blaspheme. You might be asking some deeper theological questions like, well, if that's the case, if God's meeting out discipline to David, does that mean that Absalom is just a pawn in this story, that God is the one moving the puzzle pieces? And the answer to that is no. God is eternal. He doesn't have to look down a corridor of time, nor does he really have to move puzzle pieces. He already knows everything because for God, everything is now. It's his nature. He's eternal. He is the beginning, he's the middle, and he's the end. Never in heaven does he say, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) And aren't you glad? 
Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't work out his will. And some of these things are a bit of a mystery when you begin to kind of dig down. But we are told in 2 Samuel 15, 1, it came about after this, that Absalom provided for himself a chariot. So he's now back in the royal court, a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Now, all of a sudden, Absalom provides for himself a chariot. He all of a sudden wants to look kingly. And as the chapter unfolds, we're going to see that he begins to plot a plan to usurp the throne from his father. He wants to be the king, probably partly because he doesn't believe that his father is just. After all, he let Amnon get away with what he got away with. Why does he deserve to be king? And somewhere deep down, Absalom was nursing bitterness. Turn over, hold your place in uh, 2 Samuel. Turn over to the book of Hebrews. This is chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews is giving examples uh, in chapter 11 about faith. And then he gives a negative example from the life of Esau. Hebrews 12, look at verse 14. Hebrews 12, he's just been talking about discipline and how if God disciplines you and you learn from it, then it will yield fruit in your life. If you submit to that discipline, if you will, it's not pleasant, nobody likes it, but it will allow you, Hebrews 12, 10, to share in God's holiness if you allow that discipline to work. All discipline, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment seems to be not to be joyful, but sorrowful. If you've ever heard your parents say to you, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, I'm not sure about that one. But anyway, but I used it on my kids. So uh, anyway, feel free. But <laughs> so, but it yields something. It yields, if you're trained by discipline, notice middle of 11 of Hebrews 12, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness. Of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble. Discipline is intended to strengthen weaker parts of your life. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Discipline's purpose is for healing and strength. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, if you go back to 2 Samuel, that Absalom was nursing a root of bitterness, and by it many were going to be hurt. What should he have done? Let's ask that question. Well, I think if he would have come to his father and said, Dad, I am angry. I don't know why you didn't deal with Amnon. I am sorry for what I've done. I regret it. Would you please forgive me? We probably would have been on the road to healing. But instead of that, Am uh, Absalom nursed the bitterness. He didn't show it on the outside, but on the inside, the water was boiling over. And so he begins to position himself. He gets a chariot, horses and a chariot, chariots, and he begins to show that he is kingly. He, 
He's bowed before his father, but I think it's clear that his heart is far away from his father. Jesus said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Absalom's heart was far from his father. Absalom's ambition was singular. He would oppose the kingdom of David, but by opposing David's kingdom, he would oppose God. And if you oppose God, you're going to lose. David's ascension to the throne was not solely dependent upon his person. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was still a sinner like you and me. The Davidic covenant promises that God made were not based upon perfect performance. It was something that God decided to do. He chose David. And so Absalom, by opposing his father, will oppose God. David's failure had weakened his kingdom. God's heavy hand was on him, but still God's promises were there. And God's promises never fail. He will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. Even if you feel like you've made some poor decisions that have hurt you and others around you, and even your witness. And so Absalom began to put some stuff in place. The sons rode upon mules, uh, 2 Samuel 13, 19, but Absalom set up chariots and horses. Some commentators say this is the first time chariots and horses are seen on the streets of Jerusalem in the Bible. And they say that chariots and horses are associated more with the enemies of God, think of the chariots of Egypt, than they are with God's people. And chariots and horses and the multiplication thereof were a warning given to the kings of Israel not to multiply horses and to multiply wives. But it seemed like they ignored those warnings. And so Absalom is trying to look the part. He's trying to get a big image going on. And so he got a tricked out SUV, <laughs> tinted windows, lowered, <laughs> cool rims, Guys with sunglasses, young and studly, running in front of the. Hey, are you got Absalom? You got it back there. Yeah, good, 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 good. Everywhere he went, he looked like the official kingly crown prince. Whoa, there he goes again. There he goes again. He had one of the most well known cars of the time. It was called a JMW. Jerusalem. Motor works. I don't know. <laughs> How you like that? Anyway. And he was going around town looking like he had secret service. And everywhere he went, there was parade and pomp. You think David heard about it? You think any of the People in the city went, hey, David, uh, have you seen Absalom's new car? You, have you seen some of the guys that run with him? Have you heard about their walkie-talkie system? I mean, David had to be hearing. But you're going to notice an underlying theme in the chapter. David, we never hear from him. He's passive. Passive parenting doesn't work. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Sometimes you see the brat in the store and you say, please, I'll cover the camera. You spank him. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that.
Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. This is Pastor Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona. Hey, I want to tell you something that's exciting happening here at the church. We have a college that we've started. We offer a two-year diploma in Christian apologetics and theology. We have two exciting classes coming up with great instructors. It's Hidden Riches of Church History from the Resurrection to the Reformation. And we have a class on Christian philosophy. How do we know what truth is? We're going to look at epistemology and some other subjects like that. Are you a working adult? Have you just graduated from high school and looking to go deeper in your faith? The tuition is very low and the instruction is excellent. And the classes start in July. Are you interested? Do you want to go deeper in your faith? Do you want to be more equipped to give answers for the hope that you have in the public square? Well, check it out today. It's thetruthacademy.com, thetruthacademy.com. Sign up today, find out all the information, and get equipped. God bless you. But you're going to notice an underlying theme in the chapter. David, we never hear from him. He's passive. Passive parenting doesn't work. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Sometimes you see the brat in the store and you say, please, I'll cover the camera. You spank him. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that right now. Absalom used to rise early, verse 2, and stand beside the way to the gate. The gate was the city hall of the ancient world where what's called adjudication would happen. They would, they would hear cases and come to conclusions of judgment and trials and that kind of thing. So Absalom woke up early. He believed in the early saying, the early bird gets the crown. And he would stand by the way of the gate. And it happened when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment because the king would hear cases. Absalom would call to him. He had his chariots and horses and 50 men. He looked official. And he would say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Hey, he, he kind of intercepted people who are supposed to be coming to King David to hear his wisdom. And he stood a little bit before the gate and he would say, hey, where are you from, where are you from brother, sister? Oh, I'm from the tribe of Dan. Oh, you are. I have a cousin out in those parts. Uh, yeah, yeah. You ever experienced this and that from over there and there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know that place. And he would all of a sudden begin to position himself so he could be the judge. After all, he didn't think his father's judgment was that great anyway. Where are you from? Hey, let's, let's talk a little bit. The city gate being the official city hall, you can check Genesis 19.1, where Lot is at the city gate. You can check out Deuteronomy 21.19, Ruth 4.1, but just think of the city gate as kind of city hall. And so here's Absalom intercepting. He has initiative. He wakes up early. He intercepts. He ingratiates himself with the people. Absalom would say to him, the person that he struck up the conversation, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. If you have the ESV, it says, there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Here is the problem, brother. I hear what you're saying. I think your claims are good and right. I agree with you. If only King David would get his administration together... People like you could be heard. 
People like you would get recourse for their cases uh, you know, against others. But this administration is slack. They don't care about the people anymore. Do you see a budding politician? Oh, yeah. Sure, he had posters with his face on it. Make Israel great again. <laughs> Stuff like that. And what he was really implying is the king doesn't listen to you. They don't listen to you anymore. They don't care about the people. Your chances of receiving justice from this administration are slim to none, brother. But I hear you. I'm the crown prince after all. And I hear what you're saying. And he began to create a dilemma. He was making political promises and he was also speaking against his father's administration. And Absalom would then say something like this, verse 4, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I, can you hear it, brothers and sisters, I would give the people justice. Political promises, right? We've heard it from every politician from the time there was any kind of democratic process. I will be a friend of the people. <laughs> I will do this. Read my lips. <laughs> this is back a couple of generations ago. Read my lips. No new taxes. Yeah, right. But this is how the game works. And Absalom began to play the game. And he began to put doubt in people's hearts about David and make them Look at him, and after all, Absalom was a good-looking dude. He had an impressive entourage. There was no one as handsome as him, and remember, most people's hairdos had some of Absalom's hair. <laughs> you were with us last week. He had some big hair, man. He had opened several stores. He had a chain going on. J. Vernon McGee called Absalom a great backslapper. I'll take care of you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Backslapper. And so he began to tell people, look, if I was in charge around here, people would be getting justice. I'll set things right. And it happened that when a man came near prostrate to prostrate himself before him, by the way, which shouldn't have happened because he wasn't the king, but a man would come and prostrate himself. Notice how quick on the trigger Absalom was. Earlier we saw he would tell the person they're right before he even apparently heard the case. And then when a person came before Absalom, he would put out his hand, he would take hold of him, and he would kiss him. Where are you from, man? Oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. And he, he was, his father just kissed him at the end of the last chapter. He was giving kingly kisses, but his kisses were full of malice almost like the hypocritical kiss of Judas when he kissed Jesus in the garden to identify him as the one. And in this manner, Absalom, verse 6, dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so verse 6 says, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Little by little, one at a time, he would hear a case. He would say, I will 
I will give justice in your favor. He would kiss them. He would say he had a connection to them. He understood them. They would walk away saying, man, he's handsome. He's impressive. He listens to the people and he gives judgments in our favor. What else could you want? And so he stole their hearts away. There are some scholars that believe that David may have been sick, physically ill at this time. There are some psalms that are attributed to this time that speak of some sort of sickness. Thus it may be, and this is conjecture, but this is one view, that Absalom kicked David when he was down and stepped into an open gap to seize advantage when his father was physically ill and maybe couldn't carry out all the duties of the office. I mean, that's one explanation, and it seems to make some sense. Here's one of the Psalms you can look at, Psalm 41. Just go to your right, Psalm 41. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and of course, a lot of them are written during times of trouble. That's what makes them so relatable. And you might be asking, well, what was David's weapon if he was on a sickbed and Absalom's pulling all these shenanigans? What did David do, and what should I do if something similar is happening to me? One writer this week I read said, David's main weapon in these times was prayer. In Psalm 41, he said, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desires of his enemies. The Lord, 41.3, will sustain him on his sickbed in his illness. Thou dost restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. I'm sure David's sin still bothered him, of course. My enemies speak evil against me. They say things like this, when will he die and his name perish? Maybe you could read between the lines, when will he die so I can just take over? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. You can imagine Absalom visiting David. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. He doesn't tell me. But he tells it when he leaves. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. They say, a wicked thing is poured out upon him. That when he lies down, he will not rise up again. He's sick because of what he did. Verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. By the way, this is quoted in the New Testament in regard to Judas betraying Jesus. But thou, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that thou art pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, thou dost uphold me in my integrity. Thou dost set me in thy presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Back to 2 Samuel. Now, there's a little bit of a debate as to the number in verse 7. There are some manuscripts that say at the end of 40 years. That's how the New American Standard reads in verse 7. There are some, a few manuscripts that say 40 days. And if you have an ESV or NIV, it says four years, which is technically called an emendation. It's amended, and it's amended based upon a few manuscripts, namely the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, and then from Josephus. Uh, 
those who translate believe four makes more sense. And just so you know, it's the difference between four and 40 is a one plural ending. And so sometimes in the translations or the copies, if there was some sort of copyist error, and by the way, this doesn't mean that the Bible is not the word of God, but it was copied by humans. So sometimes by looking at various manuscripts, we can get, ba get back to the original. And we can tell there was a slip of the pen somewhere. And by the way, it's just a slip of the pen potentially on a number. So if you want to do a little bit more homework, I can recommend some resources. But basically, uh, it would seem that the more logical conclusion is at the end of four years. And this is what this would mean, that Absalom was doing what he was doing as described in the first six verses for about four years. That's about how long it took. 40 years seems to be a really long time. David would be really old. So you can see part of the dilemma there. So here's what happened. At the end of four years, if that's correct, Absalom said to the king, verse 7, please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So all of a sudden, Absalom comes to the king. He's been doing this stuff for potentially four years. And he says, I made a vow. And I want to go pay that vow in Hebron. Now, maybe, maybe his dad was thinking, well, maybe the young man's getting some conviction about a spiritual life. This could be a good thing. He made a vow to the Lord. Certainly, you're supposed to pay your vows. And it's been a while. So, so this is what he comes. He comes with religious pretense. He says, your servant, and I don't think he's David's servant, but that's what he says, verse 8. He says, Vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur. Remember, he had ran off to his grandpa after he killed Amnon in Aram, saying, if the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, if I end up back in the royal court, if you will, then I will serve the Lord. So we've all probably been there before. Maybe we're in a tight spot and we, we're, we didn't know what was going to happen. And maybe, maybe you've done this before. I don't recommend this, but some people have done it. They make a vow to the Lord in a tight spot. We've all probably been there. Okay, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I will serve you. And God is so gracious, he'll often get you out of that one. But then he'll say, now, serve me. And that's when a lot of people say, now that you got me out of this one, see you later, God. I'll, I'll call you next time I have an emergency. Hey, listening family, I want to tell you a little bit more about the store at walkintruth.com, and I'd like to highlight a teaching we have up there. It's called The Anatomy of a Fall, and it's from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How can we keep from falling to sexual sin in a culture like ours? Well, we've tackled this and put it on the radio recently. I know you can benefit from it. You can also pass it along to a friend. It's available in CD and DVD format. And you go to walkintruth.com, click on the store, and when you purchase a product, you are partnering with us to help us reach more people like you. When you buy something, it goes directly to paying for radio airtime. So walkintruth.com, click on the store, and look for the anatomy of a fall. Purchase it, pass it along to somebody else, and you'll be partnering with this radio ministry. We appreciate it. God bless you, and we'll catch you next time on Walk in Truth. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.